I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and this is The Truth of the Matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. And to get to the truth of the matter on what is happening with Brexit, we'll talk with CSIS's Heather Conley. Ms. Conley is the Senior Vice President for Europe, Eurasia, and the Arctic, and Director of the Europe Program at CSIS. Prior to joining CSIS as a Senior Fellow and Director for Europe in 2009, Conley served four years as Executive Director of the Office of the Chairman of the Board, of the American Red Cross. Thank you, Ms. Conley, for being with us today. Let's talk about what happens now that Brexit has happened. Well, uh, it's great to be with you both. So in some ways, we have been focusing on Brexit for three and a half years, ever since the June 2016 referendum. We've had our ups and our downs. We've had general elections. We've had votes in parliament that have gone wrong. We have new prime ministers. And you sort of feel like we just sort of stagger across this finish line because on Friday, January the 31st at 11 p.m. in the U.K., the U.K. will formally leave the EU. And in some ways, it sort of feels like a letdown that this is happening, in part because really nothing happens at 11.01 p.m. because 2020 is basically a year of transition, meaning that everything sort of stays the same. And then there's a year for the U.K. and the European Union to negotiate a new future trade relationship. So everything changes and nothing changes uh, on the 31st. And the other part where I think this is a little bit of a letdown in some ways, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson is basically trying to, you know, stop the talk about Brexit. Brexit is done. He got that over with. That was dusted and done. And he wants to focus on the UK internally. He wants to focus on helping schools and hospitals and, and policing and helping the, the voters that voted him into power with an enormous majority in the House of Commons. They were a lot of uh, votes from the opposition party. And he wants to focus on them to basically realign the United Kingdom politically. But we're not done yet. For my friends and fans of Brexit, it's going to be a monumentous year because the UK has to make so many important choices about its future economic orientation. And uh, we don't quite yet know what those choices will be. But what UK officials are telling us is that they are not going to comply with EU regulations and standards. They're going to diverge. They're going to take their sovereignty and they're going to choose some different paths, which will have enormous ramifications for the British economy, certainly next year. As I think you and I have talked about before, uh, at CBS, we always had this rule. What does it mean for us? Why should we care about this story? Why should the United States care about this? How is it going to affect our relations? It's always where we begin. What is important to U.S. interests? So the United Kingdom 
is the United States' you know, closest intelligence, uh, security, and defense partner. That is a relationship that has, has grown over the last hundred years. We have a strong economic relationship. Uh, and of course, we have the, the cultural impact. So the UK is a very important partner to the United States globally. And we've always relied on the United Kingdom to help encourage Europe, the European Union in particular, to be a strong market market-oriented, globally active, whether that's in foreign and security policy or international aid and development, we've always used that partnership and leveraged it uh, really across Europe. And now that's going to change. We'll have a strong bilateral relationship with the United Kingdom. But in fact, that bilateral relationship may in itself be transformed quite a bit because this year, uh, lots of encouraging talk coming from both Washington and London about a new U.S.-U.K. free trade agreement. And that's what our U.S. Trade Representative Office wants to focus on. So we may reorient that economic relationship, make it stronger, potentially. And, you know, the intelligence relationship has really undergone quite a bit of challenge because of the decision that the United Kingdom just made about 5G and Huawei, which after much barking from this administration and threatening that the U.S. would withhold any intelligence sharing with the United Kingdom should they allow Huawei in to the UK uh, telecommunications system that they would stop that. Well, the UK just announced that they are going to allow Huawei to develop at least 35% of the telecommunications backbone, the non-core, and monitor the rest. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is in London on uh, January the 30th, trying to get them to reverse that decision or maybe make a different decision. But there's some sovereignty here. The UK is uh, certainly making some decisions. Some are supportive of the US, some are not. But this whole situation with Huawei, which mm -hmm. is this enormous Chinese company. We're trying to decide how do we deal with Huawei. Just talk a little bit about what this company is, mm. what the dangers of dealing with it are, and what are the advantages of dealing with it. Sure. So in many ways, this has been uh, Huawei because it has made enormous commercial inroads into Europe, uh, also to the U.S. It's certainly part of some of our telecommunications uh, infrastructure. It was a very cheap alternative. The problem is once it is in the network and the software integration and updates, the United States has profound questions about China's ability to survey and to to tap all of that data that's being transmitted on those networks. In other words, to just kind of find a back door completely, into our internet completely. and all of the things like our electric grid. Yes, uh, exactly. And it's because in some ways Europe is a little behind in those important telecommunications updates and advances to really be as prepared as possible for the digital economy and to receive all the benefits of that. And so it's already in the system and now they want to grow it and advance it. And the U.S. has really had a very strong message for all of our intelligence sharing partners and allies uh, in the so-called Five Eyes group, as well as our, our NATO partners to say, we're not sure we can trust sharing information if your systems are 
compromised. So it was a very robust diplomatic demarche to the British. And quite frankly, they've been pretty consistent in saying, we do not accept your premise that we have to rip out all of the Huawei introduced infrastructure, hardware and software, that we can monitor it. But in concession to the U.S., the U.K. said, we're not going to some of our core critical infrastructure, some of those core communications that support intelligence sharing and the most classified information. We're not going to allow Huawei in that, but we'll allow more of the commercial non-core element of it to 35%. And then the UK feels very confident that it can monitor Chinese behavior and activity in that 35% to make sure that it does not do anything untoward. Now, we're all over the place. We have Australia, New Zealand, the Czech Republic. Some allies have just completely removed all of Huawei out of their system. But the UK now has provided sort of this third way. And the European Union is wrestling with this issue. They just set out some guidelines. The Germans have yet nationally to pronounce on this. And you know, in some ways, the UK decision here is going to allow all of our allies to say, Okay, if the U.S. doesn't really hit the Brits very hard on this decision, this is okay then. So it actually, the U.S. really threatened the U.K. And if there's not going to be any action, I'm not a proponent of that, but I'm just saying if we don't follow through on our threats, it sends a message to all the other allies. Oh, we're all bark. We're not going to bite. And the U.K. has basically found a way that we can all allow Huawei into our system in a way that the, maybe the U.S. will find acceptable. So it's a really, really big decision. And the pressure that the U.S. applied to the U.K. was pretty extraordinary. Let's bring in Andrew. Bob, thank you. And Heather, thanks for being here with us. I think you're our most frequent guest oh. on The Truth of the Matter, which is a great thing for me and Bob. Oh, well, thank you. You're very kind to always invite me back. <laughs> so, Lots to talk about. There, there's so much to talk about in your space. Your space is, I should say. You cover so much of the world. Let me ask you about this. Immigration was a massive issue in inciting Brexit in the first place. Do we have a clear understanding of how the British immigration system is going to shape up following Brexit? It's still a very powerful point of discussion. And again, just to, just to back up a little bit, the United Kingdom is not part of the Schengen process, meaning that the UK decides who comes into its borders outside of the European Union. But as a member, the last day as of January 31st of the EU, they allowed all the EU member states or citizens to travel freely and work. And of course, when the Central European countries were welcomed into the European Union in 2004, you saw a pretty significant increase of Polish citizens and Romanian, Bulgarian, again, English speaking, great universities, a very thriving service sector, all of those things very important. And so it was internal EU migration that really was the challenge. And the UK itself, they had put targets and limits on allowing migration, and they never were able to achieve those. So it was sort of a, a governing failure. And so when the 2016 referendum was held, of course, that was the outgrowth and outpouring of the 2015-2016 migration crisis where over nearly 2 million people came to Europe, mostly Syria, but also Afghanistan, Pakistan, some from Africa. And this was used from posters, you know, we have to stop this migration crisis. But the UK had absolute control over that, unlike the other EU countries. But it was used very powerfully as a fear factor. Now, fast forward three years from now, as the UK is deciding its its economy, 
it needs high-skilled labor. It needs that powerful force to propel its economy. And so it's now contemplating having an Australia type of migration system, which is basically a point system, meaning those highly skilled migrants that you, you know, if you are have skills that match with jobs in the UK, that will be encouraged. But in the meantime, there's still, even though there was agreement between the European Union and the United Kingdom on EU citizens that are, are there staying in the United Kingdom and British citizens that are in the EU, they have agreed to those citizens' rights. It's still unclear whether the UK, quite frankly, can really manage its own migration system in light of all the structural changes that have to occur very rapidly. So still an issue, still important. But in some ways, it was really the migration crisis was used inappropriately for the referendum But, you know, fear motivates, and it was a very powerful motivational factor in in the decision uh, to leave the EU, for sure. Recently, there was a report released by the Migration Advisory Committee. What were some of its findings? Again, this gets to the truth of the matter. You know, what is fact and what is being used for for fear? And, And again, what this demonstrates is that the UK government has had a difficult time managing the numbers and keeping them manageable. In the meantime, its economy needs that high-skilled labor. How do you manage those two dynamics? You know, there's also challenges, and certainly the UK has suffered greatly from violent extremism, homegrown terrorism, trying to manage that as well. So, you know, you have all of these forces. They know they need a stream of migration to keep their economy humming. They have to control that. But you're finding that balance is so, so difficult. And I think that's what that study really suggests. There's going to have to be a trade agreement with the United States. And a lot of people say, well, that's going to be very easy. The United States and Britain have this special relationship. Both leaders have similar haircuts. Yeah. (laughs) I've never heard of a trade agreement that was easy. And what do you think, for one thing, drug prices taxes on corporations, uh, high-tech companies. I think there are a number of things that are going to be a difficulty for, for both sides to come to an agreement, and even though both sides know they need this agreement. You're absolutely right. There is no such thing as an easy trade agreement, even when the sides are very dissimilar and one is overwhelmingly more powerful than a smaller economy, they are still difficult. So I think it's important that there is a strong U.S.-U.K. free trade agreement at the end of this process. It won't be easy. We can talk about the the timing of what could happen this year as opposed to in the future, because we want to make sure our strongest security defense intelligence partner, we have a strong and robust trade relationship. And over the last several years, there have been a series of working group meetings between the UK trade officials. Uh, And again, the UK had to find trade negotiators. They haven't had to negotiate a trade agreement in 40 plus years because as a member of the EU, the European Union is the trade negotiator on behalf of all the EU. So first of all, it was finding the human capital to negotiate all of these trade agreements. So the US and the UK have formed working groups. They have been working on the foundations of this agreement. So some of the spade work has been done. But the U.S. will not really be able to negotiate uh, on some of the key issues until we know how the U.K. and the E.U. are going to proceed in the future. Because if the U.K. decides that it wants to stay in pretty good trade alignment with the European Union, all the standards, all the regulations, environment, 
that's going to limit the ability for the United States to negotiate a, a robust, deep trade agreement. And in some ways, it'll feel a little bit like the U.S. and the EU negotiating a, a trade uh, a relationship. But if the U.K. decides to really scrap, in many ways, its trade relationship with the EU because it wants to completely go in a new direction, there are opportunities in the U.S.-U.K. relationship. But we aren't going to know that until they make some preliminary decisions about their future relationship with the EU. Now, this, you know, all trade is politics, as we know here in the United States. We have a very rambunctious political conversation about the benefits uh, of trade. The U.S.-U.K. free trade agreement became very politically potent in the last U.K. general election. Because, and this is where I think this this year of discovery that will be 2020 for the UK, I think they're going to find out they're actually more European in their preferences. They don't want U.S. hormone beef. They don't want our poultry chickens. They don't want some of the U.S trade practices, which their perception is, I'm not speaking of reality, it is of a different standard than what they're accustomed to. They actually want European standards. And this became a big issue in the election. So this is going to be very hard because the U.S. is going to be a very, very tough trade negotiator. And they are going to want the U.K. to go on their side of it, on agriculture, on everything's on the table. They're going to want, you know, U.S. wants to maximize its trade benefits. At the same time, the EU is going to be playing really hardball with the UK because the moment they start diverging, particularly if they do it even in this year, in this transition period, you can see the EU starting to sanction the UK for unfair trade practices. So this could be like a double whammy about the EU uh, hitting the UK, the US using its muscularity to force it to do things. And the UK just has a lot of big decisions to make. It's really important to know that the UK's economy is oriented towards Europe. 43% of UK exports go to the EU. So if they decide to diverge, which again, political signaling telling us that they're going to, this is a pretty profound reorientation of the UK economy. We don't know what that means for supply chains. And if the EU plays really hardball, for instance, not giving adequacy to the UK on data sharing, their companies aren't even going to be able to share data. So I mean, this could get very rambunctious, and it will deeply impact what the U.S. could negotiate down well, the road. Well, you know, just to underline the enormity yeah. of what's ahead, let me just read you something. The Financial Times counted more than 750 treaties running to hundreds of thousands of pages and spanning 168 non-EU countries. That's what's coming here. This is not going to get done in a year. I mean, don't most trade agreements take about seven years? That is the average lifespan, yes. What the UK is hoping to do is do some immediate rollovers. So all the, at least the negotiated agreements with the EU. So basically what the UK would say is we accept, you know, it would be the exact same trade relationship. So you're just rolling it over and you're scratching out the EU and putting the UK. We'll agree to all of that. But that only works if the UK is going to remain in alignment with the EU on its trade regulations and standards. So that's sort of the consequence of choice here, is if they don't, then they can't roll them over. The other trading partner, again, putting ourselves in the, in the US position, look, if we can wait and hold out and get better trade concessions from the UK, if they have really made some big decisions, 
our position may be stronger. So the Canadians also were sort of waiting to see, well, let's see if we have trade advantage, depending on what the UK does with the EU. So that wonderful Staples big red button, these press easy, every political figure says, this is easy, this is easy, this is easy. Yeah, the easy button. It's never easy. And trade is so complicated. And there's so many constituencies, and in particular on agriculture, the most politically sensitive in all of our countries. The biggest fight between the EU and the UK, believe it or not, is going to be on fisheries. And it just comes to a very important impulse for sovereignty. Agriculture, the U.S. is not going to allow agriculture not to be part of the U.S.-U.K. free trade agreement. It's what we're demanding for the U.S.-E.U. trade agreement. And it is so politically sensitive here. So as I said, get your bowl of popcorn for the wonderful trade nerds out there. This is going to be a show to watch because it's multidimensional chess. And you have a U.K. that just does not have that longstanding trade negotiating capabilities, uh, they are going to have to do it pretty quickly. Yeah, the trade guys are chomping at the bit can't on this wait, one. Can't yeah. wait to get them in there. Yeah, well, we got to get you on the trade guys <laughs> soon to explain all this. But on another issue, do you have a sense of which direction the UK is going to head in terms of foreign policy? So this is another big, big question. What we've seen from the UK over the last three and a half years is this very strong uh, message of global Britain. And we've seen them really redouble their efforts on NATO. So the, the primacy of NATO will take even greater importance again. And uh, it was no accident that London hosted the NATO leaders meeting in December of last year for the 70th anniversary of NATO, have been very forward leading and providing forces to a variety of, of NATO missions. So that's certainly they are redoubling their efforts to say we may be leaving the EU, but we're still strong. They're also going to, you know, refocus on the UN Security Council again. That That's not going to change in leaving the EU and using that to, to make sure they're, they're global. Global strength. But here again, you sort of see the uh, is the UK really more European than they understand? And this looking at the Iran nuclear agreement, it has been the UK, uh, France, and, and Germany, the EU3 as part of the P5 plus one, Germany being that plus one. Those three countries have remained in lockstep vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Iran nuclear agreement. They've been trying to, to preserve it since the U.S. withdrawal. And even after the events over Qasem Soleimani's uh, assassination and the Iranians announcing that they're going to go back and start uh, doing centrifuge development, They've stayed in lockstep. Now we're starting to see a little divergence on the Middle East. So since the president announced the Middle East plan, the British Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, has, was a very more positive statement about it. EU was n not as positive, sort of as a basis for conversation, but it must comply with international law and UN Security Council resolutions, which is not redrawing boundaries again. So every time the UK is going to get pulled two ways, they're going to see if they're going to follow a more European foreign and security policy outlook. The U.S., again, we the muscularity of, of our voices about the U.K., that you must go with us, I think you'll see that continue to play out. But again, what Prime Minister Boris Johnson is trying to do is actually keep all of that foreign and security policy stuff out of the way. He wants to drive a domestic agenda. But as, as so many political leaders know, what you want and what the world is going to give you as far as you know distractions is another. What do you think the... European view, and obviously there are many views, but the European view of the United States is today. Do they have a clear understanding 
of where this administration comes down on issues. So I would think the U.S. unpredictability still is what it is. No ally can accurately predict a decision made by the president in a tweet, and then sometimes it's unmade. I mean, the Syria withdrawal decision is sort of speaks to that. But I think European leaders, after their own three and a half years into this process, have become more comfortable in that environment. I'm not saying they like it. I'm saying they're now either they've accepted it and they're trying to manage around it and through it, but they're no longer shocked and surprised by it. I mean, they still can be very disrupted and very upset, but they're sort of getting used to it. And quite frankly, preparing themselves for a second term. And so you're tr- you're, what you're starting to see is now allied hedging. They're looking at different partnerships, different alignments, how they can protect themselves from future U.S. action, particularly in the trade space that we've been talking about so much, sanctions. And so we hosted here at CSIS the other week the new EU Trade Commissioner, Phil Hogan. It's fantastic. If you can go back and watch that video, he's he's a master Irish politician, I have to On say. On demand at CSIS.org. Thank you. I have to do the plug. Thank you. But what was clear to me was uh, the message to the U.S. was, you want to hit us with more tariffs? We're ready. And our countermeasures are going to be severe. So you're starting to see this. And they don't want to do this. No one wants this. We want stronger relations. But there's, you know, we're ready. You see French President Macron right now. And and, uh, last fall, I think in some ways, the President Macron was so frustrated with getting policy messages that were not coordinated, which had were very impactful to French interests, whether that's Syria, Iraq, elsewhere. I think President Macron decided, I'm going to out-disrupt this U.S. president. So I'm going to start saying things like NATO's brain dead and I'm going to start doing my independent action because I want <laughs> I want the Americans to react to me. I'm sick of reacting constantly to this unpredictability. And that uh, that's not helpful either. You know, the last thing we need is more unpredictability and more unilateralism. We need more consultation and moving together with, with our allies. So, you know, everybody has its different manifestations. But I think people are now just more comfortable with the bumpy roller coaster ride that has loop-de-loops and you're climbing up the mountain, you're plunging down. They're just in it for the ride right now. Heather Connolly, we want to thank you so much for helping us find the truth of the matter on this very fascinating and important issue. I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 